Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Um, my name's Catherine Allerton. I'm the head of the Department of Anthropology. Um, and I'm also an associate of the Southeast Asia Centre here at the LSE. So on behalf of the Sorcery Hawk Southeast Asia Centre, I'd like to welcome you all to this evening's event. The event is co-hosted with the Departments of Anthropology and Geography and Environment. And we're delighted to welcome Professor Tanya Murray-Lee, um, who will be speaking about transforming rural Southeast Asia. Um, just a few housekeeping points. Um, the event is being recorded today, just bear that in mind. Um, for anyone attending online via LSE Live, please post any questions you have using the Q&A function and include your name, affiliation, location, and of course your question. Um, and if anyone feels like tweeting about this event, please be sure to tag at LSE SEAC. Um, so without further ado, let me just very briefly introduce Tanya. Tanya Murray-Lee is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. Her work deals with a range of um, fascinating and urgent themes, including land, labor, class, capitalism, <laughs> resources, indigeneity, politics, and plantations. Um, her publications include Land's End, Capitalist Relations on an Indigenous Frontier, the co-authored Powers of Exclusion, Land Dilemmas in Southeast Asia, and the will to improve governmentality, development, and the practice of politics. And her most recent book is Plantation Life, Corporate Occupation of Indonesia's Oil Palm Zone, co-authored with Pujo Sumedi. Um, and although I think her PhD fieldwork was undertaken in Singapore, for the last three decades, her research has been focused on rural Indonesia. So welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. We're looking forward to your talk. Thank you. Catherine, thanks to the Southeast Asia Centre and Geography and Anthropology for inviting me and thank you all for coming out on a, for an evening talk. Um, uh, so uh, my theme today, Transforming Rural Southeast Asia. So if you have an idea of my work, I've been very kind of rigid and dogged in continuing to keep a focus on rural Southeast Asia in a period in which in my discipline, anthropology, but also I think in some other fields, the attention and the excitement seem to be focusing to the city, to migration, to, you know, to other themes and topics. But I've always been aware that at least half the world's population continues to live and gain their livelihood in rural areas. And I've kind of made it my job to kind of try to keep those areas in focus and try to bring to light uh, what's going on in such rural spaces. So, um, as you would have seen in the, the sort of uh, introduction for the talk, uh, I looked this up, and although the um, proportion of people living in rural areas is declining globally, um, the net number continues to rise. So, from 3 billion in 1990 to 3.4 billion in 2020. And in Southeast Asia, the area of my focus, 30 million more people live and work in rural areas today 
than they did in 1990. So even though the, the proportion is becoming urban, the net number continues to increase. So there's more and more people, in fact, living and trying to survive in rural areas under conditions which are clearly not the same as those under which their grandparents lived. Um, but there they are, and the questions that I've been asking are, well, what's happening to them? Uh, you know, what are the transformations that are underway in their domains? Uh, you know, what kinds of aspirations, practices, processes, and so on uh, could we attend to if we made them the focus of our analysis? So one of the um, reasons, I mean, it, we first have to ask, ask ourselves, like, how does the rural get to be so neglected? And I think it's partly the excitement of the urban and the idea that that's the future, but it's also what I think of as a very stubborn transition narrative, which is endemic in a field like development studies, um, but it's also present in other um, spheres as well, the idea that there's some sort of inevitable march of progress, some kind of a transition that sooner or later will happen to all people and all places, from country to city, from farm to factory, from informal work to the proper job, you know, those kinds of transitions uh, are, although we've critiqued them uh, in the academic literature repeatedly, they are very stubborn and they continue to govern both the narratives of development agencies, but also the thinking of national governments. So I first became really aware of this in 2006, reading the World Bank's report on agriculture, which actually lined up all the nations of the world along what they called a transition path, you know, where you had the kind of the stuck ones and then the transforming ones. And it's like, there's one, linear transition and every country of the world is located somewhere on this path as if the same set of transformations could be expected to occur in each and every country. But I asked myself, first of all, there's the artifact of the national frame. It, it may be that industrial jobs are being created, but if they're being created in China, that's a precious little use to you if you're being shoved off your land in Kalimantan, for example, right? This idea that within each and every country, this march from country to city and to sort of into the proper job will somehow just emerge as part of some natural unfolding seemed to me, you know, completely mistaken. But I think it, it is a still a dominant narrative. And because I think of this uh, problematic transition narrative, it seems to suggest that, and people have said this to me in my career, like, that's such boring old-fashioned stuff like you know no one cares about agrarian transitions no one cares about the rurals like no one will ever read your work it's just like that boring old peasant studies and i i've you know stuck with it because i'm pretty convinced that it continues to be important right to, to look at what's happening to that portion of the world and to pay attention to who those people are and how their lives are transforming so um just to uh, show you a little bit what this looks like. Um, I'm going to try to show you what this looks like. Yes, okay. So this is um, a graph of Southeast Asia's rural population. Um, and what you will see is the total rural population went from 302 million in 1990 to 333 million in 2020. So the percentage of rural people is declining, but the net number continues to increase. And clearly you can see from this 
graph that it's not the same across the region. So uh, in Indonesia, um, more or less static. Malaysia definitely has a, like a net declining rural population. In Myanmar, in the Philippines, still increasing. In Vietnam, still increasing. So it's not a uniform picture, but nevertheless, uh, you know, taken together, the rural <coughs> continues to be very important. And although I'm going to talk mainly about Indonesia today, you know, it's like in a context in which even the things that I'm describing are, are not uniform across the region, and I wouldn't um, claim they are. Just, it's worth thinking briefly about Malaysia because it will come into my talk later where I'm going to focus a little bit on plantation sector. So in Malaysia, there has been what I would call a real agrarian transition, as in young people really have left the countryside, they really have marched off to the cities, Large parts of rural Malaysia are depopulated. What's there now are plantations, and most of the people who work in those plantations are Indonesian migrant workers, and sometimes Bangladeshis and others. But basically, young Malaysians, by and large, do not live or work in the countryside. So, you know, the transition narrative works for Malaysia, but it doesn't work for Indonesia, the country next door, where the conditions are already very different. Okay, so um, that's the the big topic. And so as we try to make sense of what is changing in rural areas, uh, um, I'm going to draw briefly on this work which um, Catherine Heine mentioned earlier, um, work that I did together with a political scientist and a geographer, Derek Hall and Phil Hirsch. Um, so focusing in on the land question, you know, of many things which are changing, I'm going to focus for a while now on what's changing in relationship to land. That's a key resource, obviously, in rural economies. And um, what we tried to do in our work, which was comparative across the Southeast Asian region, was to understand what is actually changing in people's relationship to land and how is it changing? You know, what are the processes? What are the powers at work? So in terms of... Still very sticky. In terms of the processes. So we did this work inductively, you know, looking across the Southeast Asian region. We, I know I have certain expertise in kind of Indonesia, Malaysia, Phil works in Thailand, in the Mekong region, you know, um, Derek has a, a specialization in the Philippines. So we, the first question we asked ourselves is what are the processes which are shaping patterns of access to land? Like what is actually, uh, what are the, the what what kinds of things are going on in the countryside which are changing people's access. So one process is formalization. So right across the Southeast Asian region, you see programs, whether it's to do with land titling or mapping or zoning, but there is a, a lot of intervention in which state agencies of different kinds are placing new boundaries, new rules, uh, new ways in which the old kind of informal practices of access to land are being replaced by more formal state-backed uh, arrangements. So that's one thing. Another thing which is happening right across the region is the rise of conservation as a set of practices. So the amount of land which is set aside in conservation areas has been increasing, but so too has the um, effort and especially the donor funding put into the actual maintenance of forest boundaries. So in, in the context of concerns about climate change and deforestation and so on, conservation has become 
a major element changing people's access to land. If you could no longer just treat the forest as your land frontier, there was perhaps long a boundary there, but no one really enforced it. Now those kinds of uh, conservation-related boundaries are becoming more solid, protected areas, and even things like community-based resource management, even at the village level, you know, people are being uh, encouraged or sometimes obliged to set aside areas for conservation. So the rise of conservation is actually changing people's access to land across the region. A third process is what we called in the book non-agrarian land uses, so, or post-agrarian land uses. So mines, dams, logging concessions, special economic zones, infrastru infrastructure projects, and peri-urban real estate development. Or you imagine in the uh, outskirts of Hanoi, for example, you know, rice fields with apartment blocks in the middle of them as someone has managed to get hold of a parcel of rural land and transform it for real estate. So these kinds of processes are also uh, part of the dynamic. The fourth one, which I'm going to talk about quite a bit because it's actually my area, real area of expertise, is crop booms. So this is also the kind of thing which changes people's relationships across large areas. So in much of the Mekong area, rubber has been a boom crop, both among smallholders and large-scale corporations coming in to do rubber. Um, oil palm, obviously, shrimp farms, massive areas of Thailand, other parts of the Mekong like, converted into shrimp agriculture, coffee, cocoa. So boom crops have been changing people's access because in the context of a boom, land has a, suddenly has a new value, people take a new interest in it, new actors coming on the scene, wanting to get hold of it, wanting to turn it to new purposes. So that's another process which has been uh, occurring. Um, the fifth one, what we called intimate exclusions. So that's an old process. It's an age-old process, which has to do with the kind of petty capitalist processes of accumulation. Um, when I asked a, a bunch of land activists in Myanmar, like, what was the main element in their loss of access to land? Was it military land grabs or was it debt? like the ordinary kind of debt to the neighborhood moneylender. <laughs> and they said, the military is the drama, but the actual process through which most of them have lost access to land is debt. And that has to do with, um, you know, the, the kind of the grind of capitalist, petty capitalist production and, you know, people not being able to make ends meet, taking loans, mortgaging land, losing land, often to their neighbors and their kin and people in the village. So that, that we call that in the book intimate exclusions. It's the small scale processes which are also very prominent. And the sixth one is what we called ethno-territorial claims. And this is a, a process which has been very strongly marked across the region in the last two or three decades. The rise of movements claiming to have prior priority and access to land based on identity. So we, the indigenous people, or we, the kind of the ethnic group that properly belongs here, whereas you people don't belong here, we were here first, you know, we, you know, that, that kind of claim to access and exclusion based on arguments about identity is also something which has really been on the rise in the last few decades, and it's a change from the period 
uh, immediately after decolonization, when the idiom of land for the people uh, was not really identity-based. It was the idea of you know, land to the tiller and the farmer and the peasant. But now it's very much more likely to be recognition of indigenous territory or ethnic-based um, movements. So these were the processes that we identified. And I think if you are not a Southeast Asia scholar, but if you did a similar exercise in other parts of the world, you know, in South Asia or, you know, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, you would identify a set of processes and some of them would be similar and others would be different. Like, in some cases, war would be a major process, you know, changing people's access to land. It could also be climate, you know, famine, drought. These were the ones that we came up with sort of uh, organically um, based on our research. So those were the processes. Oops really not doing well with this. Um, yeah, okay, so you have to do it twice, I guess. Okay, so then we, we asked ourselves, if those were the processes, like what were the powers? Like how, how actually was this taking place? Like what kind of uh, powers are at work in changing people's <coughs> access to land? So initially, when we started the book, uh, like we all thought, well, it's markets, you know, we're in a neoliberal era, it's like markets, markets everywhere. It must be market processes that are changing people's access. And we were thinking, you know, DeSoto and land titling and, and market processes would be the main thing. But when we actually looked across the region, we found that markets were only one of the elements changing people's access to land. And regulation, you know, state-driven processes were certainly important. You know, regulations shaping um, the rules of who can be where, who can do what. This could also be customary rules, laws, zoning. That basically that, that declaration of you shall not be here doing this and you may be there doing that, like that kind of force was, uh, was an important one. And sometimes those regulations were actually anti-market. So it wasn't the case, the case that market, market sort of expanding everywhere. In fact, they were very deliberately anti-market. Like in a conservation zone, uh, land markets may not appear, right? Even, and if they exist, they must be suppressed. So, so some of these were anti-market mechanisms in which a regulation was going to be the one that defined what the use could be. So force, brute force, also important, guns, Fences, prisons, evictions, you know, brute force in every area. And interestingly, you might think that um, the kind of in the Wild West, like the more remote the area, the more brute force would be at play. And certainly in parts of the Philippines, that was true in the sense of, sort of armed landlords and their militias and so on. But in fact, some of the most brutal uh, exclusions that we tract are were peri-urban. It was that you're much more likely to have arson or eviction if you're on land which is extremely valuable. And so the peri-urban land was actually some of the most wild westy, the most violent, you know, where people really could be excluded because someone would touch their house. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was also interesting. And then the fourth force that we decided we should treat separately was this idea of legitimation. So this has to do with argument. It's the argument that um, 
you should not be here because this land should be a conservation area, or you should not be here because this land belongs to this ethnic group and not to you, or a corporation should be here because a corporation will bring jobs and development. Like all of these are basically arguments, they're legitimations, they're kind of uh, arguments about who should do what where, and they also have their own force. That was what we argued. Okay, so those were the powers. And then um, now I want to try to put this a little bit into um, uh, just to kind of summarize some of the main trends that we found across the region. First of all, a trend from flexible, overlapping kinship and identity based rules towards more rigid and state created rules. And it was certainly the case that the kind of nook and cranny spaces where people used to find a little livelihood, a little spot to build a hut, plant a field, those were closing down. You know, informal access was, uh, was decreasing. Um, we certainly found closure of the land frontier. So Southeast Asia is a bit unique in this regard. I think in much of um, South Asia, for example, the colonial era forest laws were much more rigid and you know, a forest uh, boundary really meant something. Whereas in much of Southeast Asia, there have been forest boundaries since colonial times, but mostly they were not really enforced or not much enforced. So in effect, the forest frontiers were relatively open in much of the Southeast Asian region, which meant that landlessness was much lower than in South Asia or in China, for example, you know, where landlessness has been well established historically. In parts of Southeast Asia, especially fertile lowland deltas, you would, you've had landlessness for a couple of hundred years, but in much of the region, land was still available. You could still go to the land frontier. You, if you lived on the frontier, you could just like go over the next hill and cut down a little bit more forest and you know, create a garden for the next generation. So that opening of land frontiers or open frontiers, that has shifted. Um, another kind of element that has shifted the conditions has to do with the trans intensified transnational involvement, sorry for the typo. Um, more players and more actors. If you think about how we would talk about rural areas in the 60s and 70s, it was like the landlord, the peasant, the state, right? And now it's the NGO and the, you know, the transnational um, treaties and organizations, you know, a whole bunch of different actors are now on the scene, um, particularly donors, conservation NGOs, also corporations and banks, you know, all with their, uh, with their part in this. So more transnational involvement and a larger range of actors. And finally, you know, as a main process, definitely the rise of conservation, formalized private property and arguments based on ethnicity and indigeneity. So these were the sort of the big trends. But now um, I want to zoom in on one of these processes, crop booms, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, the most able to talk about, and to look at how crop booms have been changing um, Southeast Asia. So crop booms coming in two types. On the one hand, large-scale corporate plantations, oil palm, rubber, timber, shrimp, that kind of thing. On the other hand, small-scale farmers um, getting into uh, boom crops. 
So this is um, a little bit counterintuitive for some people because I'm going to argue that these crop booms have been especially intense in the most rural, um, remote, upland, highland regions, the kinds of regions where you might imagine, and people often do imagine, indigenous people will stay you know, close to nature, close to their food production practices. You know, it's the sort of the idea of the remote, the rural, the indigenous, the, the stable, the static, or the repeating pattern. But in fact, um, Southeast Asian upland people have been enthusiastic participants in global markets for many centuries. Um, certainly going back to the spice trade, but, uh, you know, if you think about Coffee was first came into Java around 1700, uh, introduced you know via um, from Brazil, and uh, Javanese farmers enthusiastically planted this new crop because they could make good money from it. Within a couple of within a couple of decades, though, the Dutch had enforced a monopoly on coffee. Uh, only they could buy the crop, and they forced the price down to less than 25% of the market price, whereupon Javanese coffee farmers tore up their coffee bushes in disgust, sensibly enough, and said, well, we're not gonna produce this for free, and stopped producing, and from then on they had to be coerced. So you had a whole coercive regime of enforced coffee production, similarly for sugar. But it, so the myth was born that the, the locals are not interested in market production. In fact, what they were not interested in was producing for markets for free. They wanted, they were happy to do this kind of production so long as they could get a market price. And so this uh, enthusiasm of remote people for global market crops is something we have to reckon with. And in some ways it makes perfect sense. If you are living on the top of a mountain, it's not much use to you to plant enormous quantities of tomatoes, for example. First of all, you can't transport them. And secondly, the local market for tomatoes, you can crash it very easily if you overproduce tomatoes. Coffee though, dried, you know, put in sacks, cloves, dried, put in sacks, um, coffee, cocoa, cloves, very transportable, high value per weight. Even rubber, um, a little bit bulky, but you can store it for months or even years until the price is right, and if it comes to it, you can transport it on the back of a bicycle, right? So these global market crops are actually very attractive to people in remote areas with relatively limited transportation options, because like everybody else in the world, they need money. You know, how else are you gonna give shoes to your children and, and send them to school, right? So they too need money, and these global crops have been very attractive to them, and there's a long history of producing for these markets, so long as the price is right. So um, crop booms, then, are not just a new thing. It's not the qu a question of uh, people who are baffled by markets or unfamiliar with markets kind of discovering market production for the first time. Uh, these, there's always been markets for these crops. The question is, what are the terms under which people are able to access them and what they do with those opportunities? Okay, so now I'm gonna um, talk about one kind of boom. So this is the one that I, the oil palm um, story, the story of the kind of large-scale corporate end of the crop boom that I studied together with my colleague, um, Pujo Smadi. Um, if you're wondering what is going on in this picture, um, these are oil palms which have been injected with Roundup, which is a herbicide to kill them. 
so that the new generation of palms can be planted underneath. So these are new palms. So it, it's a factory, basically. Um, you know, you plant these things when they get too tall to harvest, you kill them off and you plant the new ones. When workers get too old and they retire, you recruit new ones. But once these plantation systems are installed, they stay. It's a, it's a continuous cycle. This picture um, is the one which kind of really gives me the creeps, personally. Um, 13,800 different concessions. Um, that's actually Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, but in Indonesia alone, the concessions cover 22 million hectares, which is a third of Indonesia's farmland. So that's what we were referring to in the book as corporate occupation. Like these are corporations which now occupy huge swaths of the countryside. And in a corporate land concession, a corporate plantation concession, um, the customary landholders, the people who were there before, are kicked out, right? No longer have the opportunity to farm. So um, the white, these are multiple plantations back to back, like so many of them, so thick on the ground that you get these kind of areas of white. But these are all separate plantation concessions blanketing huge amounts of Kalimantan, uh, Malaysia, and Sumatra. Those are the main centers. So I look at this and I feel, well, something really enormous is transformed here, right? People can no longer live in the countryside in the way they used to because a corporation is now in charge, right? Has taken control over the land. So this is a close-up of the research area that where Pujo and I studied. And this is what you can see when you dive into those white areas and you do a close-up. Basically, this is five different plantation corporations um, adjacent who have taken over the, uh, the entire agricultural land of one sub-district. And the spaces where people can live, this is a river, the Capitalist River. These are, these are little ha remnant hamlets where people can still live in the kind of nooks and crannies uh, between the plantations. But it's a highly saturated landscape, basically, of plantations. This is what the land looks like, you know, completely clear cut. If it's flat, it's set out on a linear grid. If it's hilly, it's terraced. But the main thing is that whatever was growing there before, rambutan trees, mango trees, rubber trees, rice farms, everything is gone. And that's what is uh, coming up in its place. Um, together with the mills for processing the oil palm fruit, and this is a, um, actually one of those hamlets uh, perched on the edge of the river with no land at all. Right? So this is the corporate palm, right down to the back doors of these people who were just perched on the edge of the river, effectively landless. So that's what you see if you, if you dive into this picture, that's more or less what it looks like. And in fact, if you decide, if you dive into this picture, it looks like that everywhere where you see um, very high concentrations of white. Okay, so um, if we had an artist conceptualize what this looked like, you know, Pritchard came up with a definition of, of uh, we use the title corporate occupation being occupied by corporations, which I think you can see. He also came up with this idea of living with giants. And in the Indonesian translation of the book, we called it Hidup Bersama Raksasa, like living with giants, literally. So um, this was his attempt, together with the artist, to conceptualize what it means when a corporation moves into your neighborhood. 
basically, uh, you know, here you see, you know, corporations, giant, enormously greedy, gobbling up resources, trampling flora and fauna, um, installing uh, palms, and protected by some sort of a cabal of plantation officials and government officials sitting there with a the tea, protected by army and military and a bunch of villagers saying, hey, 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 what about us? And, you know, not getting too far with their complaints. Um, so now I want to kind of make use of the analytical framework that I offered earlier around powers to kind of, to, just to use it to try to analyze what this transformation is about. So legitimation, one of the powers. What is the work that legitimation is doing in this scene? Um, what I would say, three myths. First of all, the myth of the lazy native. So this was um, the title of a brilliant book by Malaysian historian Syed Hussein Alatas, who wrote a book called The Myth of the Lazy Native. And what he was arguing was that this was a colonial era myth, which basically says that the natives on the spot are uh, lazy and incompetent. And therefore, um, you need corporations, plantation corporations, to come in and get the job done. So this myth is being repeated and used today fundamentally unrevised, and we heard iterations of it everywhere in our plantation research, where officials and plantation managers would say, nothing was happening here before the corporations come, the locals didn't do anything, they didn't know how to use their land. And in, in order to say that, they had to overlook the fact that these villages were in fact producing rice, had produced rubber since the 1920s and were sending tons of rubber down the river every month. But the myth which enables corporate occupation is the myth that the locals are useless and that corporations are needed to get the job done. Second myth, the myth of plantation efficiency. You might think that large scale, like the scale of those huge corporations is efficient, Actually not. It turns out that, first of all, they, of all the land they occupy, they're only using about half of it. So half of it is just, uh, they have control over it, but they're not using it. So not efficient from the point of view of land use. I think the locals could make more use of nook and cranny spaces, know how to choose which crops for which niche. But a plantation is a monocrop, right? If you can't grow palm there, you won't grow anything there but they don't sort of know how to make good use of the resources. So not efficient from the point of view of land use, not even especially efficient from the point of view of production. Uh, it turns out that plantations are corrupt, leaky machines. Quite often you drive along a plantation road and you see the palms near the road look quite healthy and you walk 50 meters inside the plantation and you find palms that have never seen fertilizer in their entire life because someone stole the fertilizer or stole the budget or something, right? They actually aren't all that efficient from a production point of view. Um, smallholder farmers are much more efficient, and this is a very old finding in development studies. You know, small-scale farmers, um, you're not going to steal from themselves, right? And if they bought something expensive like fertilizer, they're going to make sure it gets onto the crop. So they're just much more efficient users of land and resources. And then there's the myth that corporations provide jobs. So the government of Indonesia has been using a figure of 20 million jobs. Really not true. Um, at most, plantations absorb one worker per five hectares. 
so of around 16 million hectares of, or 15 million hectares of corporate palm, uh, maybe 3 million employed, but definitely not 20, right? This can be very easily exaggerated. And that number does not take any account of all the jobs that were lost, all of the livelihoods that were lost, like what people were doing before, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a false equation. Okay, so those are the legitimizing myths in which I've just tried to poke a few holes. Force, also a, um, a power here, like brute force, on the one hand, you know, army and police involved in, in uh, when the bulldozers move in, but also what I've been calling infrastructural violence. So once the landscape has been flattened and the palms are installed, like, what are you going to do about it? Like, you know, whatever was there before has gone now. The landscape has been irreversibly rearranged. The flora, the fauna, the way the rivers used to run, they've now been rerouted. All the roads lead to the mill. Like, so infrastructure uh, designed for one purpose and, um, you know, set in place in a way that for the villagers makes it very hard to imagine, well, how could you change all this now? Like, you can't imagine how you could go back to how things were. So there's a violence in the infrastructure itself. And once you've installed the occupying force, you don't really even need guns and guards because the occupier is already there and you, you, you can't remove them. So you're stuck living with the, the system. Um, law is also, you know, regulation law is also a force here. Um, land law favors the corporations, that's not surprising. Law is working in their favor. And the protective laws, even Indonesian laws, which are highly pro-corporate, have protective clauses in them. Like, you know, you are supposed to negotiate with the villagers. You are supposed to have a setback between the plantation and the village. You shouldn't, you're not really allowed to do this, like build like that. Like that's against the law, but who's enforcing the law? <laughs> no one. Um, so this is a problem where uh, officials and politicians are um, officially tasked uh, with protecting the corporations, with the argument that corporations bring jobs and development. Therefore, it's the job of the government to facilitate, and uh, not just kind of under the table collusion, but uh, um, official arrangements um, in which uh, corporations are protected and law doesn't work. So market is an interesting one, right? Because based on my arguments about, late, about laziness, um, in fact, if it was left to market processes, the corporations would collapse. They only exist because they're massively subsidized by virtually free land, highly subsidized labor, and highly subsidized capital. So if you actually had market forces, um, you wouldn't have plantations. So in a sense, they, the, the way market is working is like an anti-market. It's a suppression of the market. If it was left to market forces, then uh, smallholders would actually outcompete them, as they have with other crops. So in the 1920s, <laughs> plantation, uh, rubber plantations came into Indonesia, and by the 1930s, smallholders were taking over. Now, more than 80% of the rubber is grown by smallholders, basically because they outcompete the plantations. They are more efficient. They, they can grow more at lower cost, and they can weather you know, market ups and downs better than corporations can. Um, so that's how markets work in this scene. Okay, so that's one kind of transformation. And now I want to talk about a completely different kind. And this is the one that I looked at in my book, Land's End, 
capitalist relations on an indigenous frontier, and these are highland cocoa farmers. These are cocoa pods. And these are what you might call indigenous highlanders. And this is the remarkable thing. So this is global cocoa production, a graph I found. And the pink is the Côte d'Ivoire, I know, um, historical center of uh, cocoa production. And the red is Ghana. And this is Indonesia. Went from zero to third place in global cocoa production in a period of uh, less than 20 years. Who was it? It was people who lived in the mountains, people like this, small-scale farmers living in very rugged conditions who found that cocoa would grow on their land and the market was good and they eagerly jumped into it. So uh, very modest people. So this is a cocoa farmer's house. It's just a little hut, right? And this is precious cocoa trees. And this family had 200 cocoa trees on which they were hoping to base their future. And of course, some of them succeeded and many of them failed. But the point is they changed the course of history, right? I mean, they eagerly adopted this market crop. No one forced them into it. They thought that they would uh, benefit from it and they took that path. So if we look at the kinds of powers which were involved in this case, the legitimation was coming from the people themselves, the desire to be modern, the desire to have cash, send children to school, um, you know, be like other people. Why should our children not have shoes? You know, doesn't seem fair. Um, why should our children, another generation, grow up illiterate? Like they, they could see the march of progress around them and they wanted to be part of it. So this desire is a very important force. They also wanted to overcome the insecurity linked to the El Nino cycle. So although one can romanticize kind of indigenous farming, um, it is classically fairly vulnerable to the elements, um, especially dryland farming like this, like irrigated land is, is more stable. But for these people, um, El Nino droughts, which came along every four to seven years, were catastrophic events when all of their rice and corn like shriveled up and died. And even though they had 25 different varieties of corn and different varieties of rice and, you know, did the best they could to manage these conditions through their knowledge of, of how to diversify their production, you know, seven months of drought is all going to shrivel up and die, basically. So they had their own um, evaluation that the way they were living was not... Um, the way they wanted to live. It was precarious in their view, and they, um, they also lacked cash. So they decided to go into cocoa production with the aim of improving their situation. And as I said, some succeeded, some failed, but it isn't the kind of transformation one could blame on a corporation or a misguided development scheme. You know, it's not capitalism arriving like a steamroller to kind of flatten people. This was what I called capitalist relations emerging from below, indigenous capitalism. Force, well, force also operated among the people. So cocoa is a perennial, it's a tree crop. And in their own customary understanding, when you plant a tree, it's, it means you've made an individual claim to land. So if someone plants a cocoa, uh, a coconut tree or a mango tree, like no one will mess with it, right? Because you planted that tree, now the tree is yours as is the land underneath it. So as people started to plant cocoa, 
it had its own kind of exclusionary force, and the people it was excluding was their own neighbors and kin. Before land had circulated in a shifting cultivation system, once you've planted, planted trees on it, it's now owned by the person who planted the trees. So it was an exclusion, a forceful exclusion by means of trees that operated among the people themselves according to their own logic, right? their own understanding of what it means to plant a tree in terms of claims to ownership. State law was not very relevant. Um, classic, I think actually this area was defined as a forest zone, but the forest department had no interest in this area because it had long been farmed, there's no valuable timber, there's no teak, you know, there's nothing really that the forest department was very interested in, so state law was not very relevant. Um, and the market in this case played a huge role, right? People spotted a market opportunity, you know, as the cocoa boom was taking off across the island of Sulawesi, many people were getting into it and these highlanders decided to get into it too, you know, and um, what I trace in the book is the way that market opportunity is like a shift from responding to a market opportunity is one thing. You know, there's a market for my carrots, I can sell carrots, everyone needs money, to if I can't sell my carrots at the market price, I won't be able to feed my family and then I'm going to mortgage my land and, and I'm going to go into debt, right? So that shift from market as opportunity to market as a compulsion, I can't really go into it in too much detail, but that's really the process that I describe in the book. So market was a huge force operating in this uh, situation, but it wasn't, as I said earlier, because Highlanders were baffled by markets, that they were sort of innocents who didn't understand money or debt or anything like that. They had long experience. They used to grow tobacco to export to the Netherlands. In the 1820s, it was shown that they were, it was shown in a, cargo manifest. These people have been planting cash crops of different kinds for a long time. The difference with cocoa was that it was a perennial and had this consequence of enclosing and privatizing land which set all kinds of other dynamics in play. So, you know, markets work differently. Okay, so um, to wrap up, um, you know, what I've tried to show just through kind of one interrogate, picked one process, crop booms, and I've only focused on one arena, you know, changing land relations. I could focus on labor or education, you know, other things, right? But I've, I've taken this path through labor and then specifically through crop booms to show that rural Southeast Asia is not static. It's definitely transforming, but not in the linear way, you know, not in, not in a way in which one could say everyone is on the same path. Like the people in those little enclaves they're not really on a path to anything, certainly not on a path towards improved livelihoods or even modernity. In fact, they look across at the plantations and the workers there who have good houses and pension and health schemes and say, well, that's the modern life and we'd love to have that too, but we here in this little enclave stuck with no land, we don't have access to any of that. It's just taunting us there across the river. We're just the audience. We can look at it, but we, we don't have it. So people are exposed to new forces and new um, desires, new hopes, but they don't necessarily have, uh, they're not necessarily in the, in the position to actually benefit from them. So these processes and powers are multiple. New practices, new positions, new identities. Being a landless person, for example, 
in the case of ethnic territorial movements, definitely you know, new identities being forged or being articulated. Um, diverse actors involved, governments, NGOs, corporations, small-scale farmers, all of them are actors in this scenario. There's not just one kind of uh, uh, motivator or initiator of change. It's coming from all sides. And in our last day, I would say that urban dwellers in Indonesia are largely oblivious to these changes um, because the as I discussed with some of my young Indonesian colleagues earlier this evening, um, Indonesian media really doesn't cover the rural. And uh, urban people um, actually have a little clue about what's going on in the countryside. A map like that plantation zone map with all the white would be utterly new and quite shocking to most urban Indonesians who do, are not aware are not informed, you know, are not really paying attention to how rural areas are transforming. If anything, they're hearing the myths, you know, you know, corporations bring jobs and development. And if there's a problem, well, that must just be bad actors. It's true that some companies behave badly, but on the whole, the assumption is that this is a good thing and it's, you know, along the march of progress. And um, the kind of knowledge which would question that, you know, question the myths, question the data, question the direction of change, is not something which you find discussed or debated in, um, in the media, in education, curricula, and so on. So uh, I think the, um, there is a, that's sort of why I think it's important to think about these issues. I, I do think it's different in other parts of Southeast Asia, and I don't want to claim expertise on all of it, but I would say Thailand, for example, you know, farmers from the northeast of Thailand occupied Bangkok, a central intersection in Bangkok, for many months and caused enormous headache to the urban population of Bangkok, <coughs> who was forced to reckon with the fact that rural people were there, were upset, were making demands, and were interrupting traffic, right? So they had a way of uh, forcing themselves into popular consciousness, including in, among an urban elite that in general is not very interested in or aware of what was going on in the Thai countryside, right? So, you know, different parts of the region, different, um, uh, different kinds of media presence, different, perhaps also different kinds of policy presence. Right? In, you know, Indonesia is a country which has no peasant party, no peasant unions, for historical reasons of which you're all aware. It did have those parties uh, in the 1960s, a very well-organized communist party, third largest in the world after China and the Soviet Union with uh, peasant unions and plantation workers unions that were huge and well organized. Like there was a time when the question of the rural and how the country would be organized in whose interest was in fact a matter of public debate. But since the massacres of 1965, those parties are gone, the unions have gone, and they have not reformed. So they've not come back. So 60 years later, there's still a crushing absence of the kinds of um, political debate that used to go on around the question of development and the rural sector. In other countries, I think, you know, Vietnam, for example, 
you know, the Vietnamese Communist Party still has solid roots in the rural and ignores the peasant population at its peril, right? I mean, they, they, their legitimacy still hinges in part on um, the rural constituency. Thailand, a brilliant book by Anthony Walker called Thailand's Political Peasants, in which he makes the argument that uh, the, um, the Thai military uh, concluded that rather than massacring the communists, as they did in Indonesia, um, they chased them away into the countryside, but they would then outcompete them by actually providing development and infrastructure that the people wanted so that they would wean people away from the Communist Party because the state was providing, right? So a very different kind of political settlement in the basically different resolutions of the Cold War. You know, Vietnam one example, Thailand another, Indonesia another, right? So, so it's not the same politically, just as it's not the same in terms of the processes, but I hope I've put some of this into the room. Thank you. Anna, do you want to do you want to come and sit here and you'll be a bit more comfy um, for the questions or do you want to stay you can stay there if you like if you want to stand up that's fine um okay so we will thank you so much for your incredibly interesting talk we'll now open the floor to questions i have to remind people online that if you're typing a question which apparently is going to pop up on this ipad um please uh put your name and affiliation yeah tim Oh, there's a microphone coming. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Tanya. That was uh, very interesting. Um, just one question. At the start, you gave us hard statistics about rural versus urban, and at the end, you gave us a statement about the political agency of rural people. But the obvious question is, does the distinction between urban and rural mean the same thing now as it did in 1990 or in 1890? And are we moving into a situation where actually it's hybrid, but also the um, act of calling people urban or rural is in itself a political act which might shut down how we understand who they actually are? Yeah, I think go one by one for now. I might collect um, more later on. Yes, I agree. It's, it's a very clumsy instrument. And, and the question of, of how these boundaries are drawn in the different countries, what the classification, sometimes rural populations diminish overnight because boundaries were shifted, definitions were shifted. So there's nothing very solid about this. But I do think that, and, and I think it's, um, you know, Jonathan Riggs writing about Thailand, you know, he argues that. Uh, it's more than the soil, right? That, that rural ties live in a basically, you know, suburban environment. You can be anywhere in rural Thailand and your internet will work and you've got a road and your kids go to high school and that they are, you know, very connected even if they live in a rural area. So um, not the same rural, you could say. So this is clearly a shorthand. I think in relation to the kinds of spaces where I've been working in Indonesia, um, it is really quite a different world, and people don't move in and out of the city uh, that easily. In Java, they do much more so, you know, constant traffic. Uh, people going to do casual labor, like building construction labor in Jakarta, back to the countryside, you know, more of a circular thing. In Kalimantan, people might go to the city 
try the bright lights, and after a couple of years, they're back because there's actually nothing for them there. So it, it isn't the case that there are sort of jobs and prospects for these young rural people who are, have no future in the rural areas, but it's not clear that there's anything else for them. So it's that kind of blockage that I'm trying to highlight. But I agree with you, these are clumsy categories. And um, there's a question in the front here. <clears throat> Yes, my name is Stefano Bonfa, I'm from Oxford SDE. And the question is, I just want to reflect in, let's say, Europe or England. So the rural and, let's say, urban area, it looks there is some kind, some kind of similar here. I mean, a rural area is abandoned, and the solution maybe could be innovation. It could be from bottom up, so building, so give it to the community knowledge in order they can react. Because most of the problem comes from the policy. The policy, the politician, they don't have enough, let's say, data or knowledge how, not, not to have strategy based on knowledge. So what do you think about this comparison? I guess, you know, I a lot of my work has, I, you know, I focused on um, like the, the kind of transformation I described with the cocoa farmers. Policy played no role in that, and it wasn't a question of the government needing to go to the countryside and kind of stimulate innovation where it was lacking. You know, it turned out that these people themselves looked around and saw that people were prospering with a new crop and jumped in. So I think the question of where the dynamism comes from, you know, it, uh, the plantations, that's a policy decision to enable corporations to take over massive areas of land. So that is a kind of transformation which is generated from the top down and people have to adapt to it. Some transformations are also generated in the other direction. So I think all of this is happening and the question would be, if there's change, where's it coming from? What are the processes? What are the actors? What kinds of powers are at work? Is it the attraction of the market? Is it the force of direct violence? Or, you know, like all of these um, processes and powers are at work. And there's a question in the third row, the lady with the, yeah, it's coming up. Thank you, Tania, for such an insightful um, discussion. I actually have two questions. The first one, um, you actually have mentioned this, and I don't want to put this question to a certain temporalities, but I'm curious what is the pattern after the exclusion uh, in, in several areas that you have researched? I mean, in terms of political, that you are aware of, in terms of political economy, are after ex the exclusion, they are absorbed as a rural working class in the rural area, or they're um, how to say that, uh, migrating to the urban areas and then absorb again as a world working class or you see the pattern of exclusion and inclusion and as you say, it's, it's very dynamic and it depends on the power and processes and opportunities in both areas if we can separate um, the places and the space. And the second question is, uh, I think you have mentioned in your book Lens End about the, the, the paradox, the pa problematic of movement in Indonesia, and we see that in environmental movement, peasant movement, food sovereignty movement, the complexity of uh, 
all these exclusionary practice are not being included in, in uh, specific categories. Um, how, and in, in that sense, it's a, a bit exclusionary as well. Um, how do you respond to that? And what do you think the most effective ways to acknowledge the transformation happening in rural area for social movements? Right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, it's, if you, a sort of simple um, reading of marks on enclosure, you know, an ahistorical reading also would suggest that there's an enclosure, it produces a proletariat and these people march off to the city and get absorbed into jobs, right? Um, but it's not linear like that. And in fact, historically, as Marx is very well aware, there was a period of several centuries between the enclosure of the land and the rise of modern manufacturing to absorb all these workers. So there's nothing automatic connecting exclusion to absorption into jobs like you wish. But in fact, the jobs don't just appear when and where they're needed because now there's people who need them. You can be excluded on the one hand and not included in anything else, right? So those people living in the enclaves that I described, they are uh, not needed by the plantations. They have their own uh, permanent workforce. Some of them get casual day labor at the plantations, but in our study, less than 20%. So most of those households are now landless and jobless. So, you know, there's, there's no sort of automatic connection between exclusion and inclusion. You know, you lose one, but you get another. I think that the transition narrative suggests that, right? Farm to factory. So you may lose your access to farmland, but that's okay because you just march along to the city where you will be absorbed into an urban working class. But what if not? In fact, the pattern of migration in Indonesia is the opposite. It's urban lumpen, like unemployed urbanites who become plantation workers. So they go from the city to the country, or it's people from areas of Indonesia where landlessness, they're rural but they're landless, like from Java or NTT or NTB. Those are the people who become plantation workers in Kalimantan. So there's rural to rural, and there's urban to rural, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a single process of exclusion here, absorption there. Uh, on the question of um, movements, yes, as you know, you know that I've written a bit about this, because it seems to me that the, in particular in relation to the indigenous people's movement, you know, I've written quite a bit about this, and to some extent conservation, you know, based on an idea of um, customary communities as somehow naturally conservationist, in touch with nature, or anti-market or anti-capitalist even. And this may be the case, but you cannot assume, right? As I've argued, people like that have been jumping into markets for centuries if they spot a good opportunity. Not always with the same consequences. So if you imagine the first coffee boom, let's say in Sumatra and Java, like you can go into coffee, jump into a market, but you've still got an open land frontier. So if you fail, you just can clear another little piece of forest and you go back to being a rice farmer. So the consequences of market involvement have changed because of all the other exclusions that I described, right? The conservation boundaries, the titling, the zoning, etc. Right? So these people have, have been involved in market dynamics for centuries, not always with the same uh, very serious and permanent 
consequences that they have now, but it's always something which needs to be attended to. And if you look at the way the Indonesian government is responding to the question of indigeneity, it's to say, we will recognize Indonesian people, ind indigenous people, but we define them as non-market, right? people who do not produce for markets, who only produce for their own subsistence. I mean, you practically have to be a hunter-gatherer to, to, to qualify for this very, very tiny slot. So it's like, it appears that they've recognized, and you think this is progressive, but actually they've defined it so narrowly that most of Indonesia's customary landholders, which is most people, um, cannot qualify, right? So I think movements have been part of that problem of, of sort of idealizing, sometimes romanticizing, and, and defining very narrow niche. Um, so what I've been recommending is you could say, you know, I'm an anthropologist, right? like more ethnography. Let's find out what the people are up to. What are they doing? How have their, what kinds of transformation are they uh, affected by, but also creating? Like, what are their aspirations? How are they changing the course of history by the transformations that they themselves have set underway? And movements need to be in tune with their constituency. Otherwise, they will be movements without a constituency you know, advocating something, but without people who, they claim to represent people, but those people actually are off on some other pathway, right? So I think it, it, um, it's interesting, the, the Communist Party back in the 60s, they had um, a sort of policy of sending young cadre into the countryside, and, and the, what they were told to do was to shut up and listen and learn and observe and talk to, you know, just try to understand what the peasants were up to um, before they tried to tell them what to do. And there's a good message there. Yeah. I'm just going to take two questions at a time now, if that's all right. Okay. Uh, Deborah and then Mandy. Deborah, if you wave at them, yeah. <laughs> Hi, thanks, Tanya. I'm Deborah from Anthropology. Um, I'm, I sort of belong to the same generation as you, I guess, in as much as I went off to a remote rural area and hung out with people who grow stuff. And I just wondered, um, have you got any insight into why it is that that sort of, you know, orientation in anthropology with Journal of Peasant Studies, we've all published there and things like that, has, has shifted, as you say, quite so, so radically. I don't know if it's shifted elsewhere as well, uh, or if it's something about assumptions about urbanization that seem to be going on. But I just wondered if you had any insights, because I feel that the future of the rural world seems to be at stake somehow. Sorry? The future of the rural world seems to be at stake. In our own academic practices, yeah. And then just Mandy, just behind. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, hi, Tanya. First of all, thanks a lot for the presentation. Um, and since you mentioned Malaysia, I might as well break cover. I am from Malaysia. Um, and I, I mean, since we're talking about all palm plantations, right, I can't help but to wonder, like, you know, first of all is, um, have you ever come across, like, Malaysia's history of felder schemes? Because one funny thing is that the world's largest uh, palm oil producer is actually Felder. And the funny history about Felder is that it is actually a land settlement scheme that's created by the Malaysian government in the 60s. 
And the main intention was to really resettle like, um, you know, rural Malays at that time into like, you know, productive cash crops, right? And one of the main cash crops of the time is palm oil. And the, the question here, therefore, is there is also an argument that in Malaysia, because of the land settlement schemes, there is never a true rural, right? Which that Felda, because of the prominence of Felda schemes in Malaysia, that Malaysia went through some sort of a semi-urban to an urban transition. So I'm just trying to see, like, you know, um, it, it's, it's just an interesting case study to share with you, Tanya. And secondly is maybe in contrast to, like, what you are studying in Indonesia now, do you also kind of like observe maybe a similar pattern? Or do you think like, again, because of how diverse Southeast Asia is, there, there may be more like, you know, complexities to that? Great. Okay, thank you. I'll go in reverse. So, you know, the Felder schemes were interesting, right? Because it was the image of, of settling the pe you know, peasant households on the land, give everybody two hectares of productive oil palm, and you create a landed, peasantry and, and that would be a, a poverty reduction um, process for Malaysia. But what happened was that um, rural Malays took off for the city. You know, they, they, the government was quite successful with rural education and also with job creation in the cities. And so now those Felder schemes have re-corporatized. They're no longer based on smallholder farms. Corporations run them and Indonesians do the work. So it's, it, it, it's an interest, it's an sort of like, a, it's the reverse of, uh, well, I think you could say it's a successful agrarian transition, right? Out of agriculture, from farm to factory, from country to city in Malaysia, which is why the oil palm story in Malaysia is very different from Indonesia. In Malaysia, like rural people, rural families lack labor, old couples, their, their children are gone. They can't farm their land. If a company comes along and wants to farm it and give them a nice rent, they'll say, great, we get some income in our old age. The children are gone anyway. Indonesia, the children are not gone. There's no one, nowhere for them to go. There's no jobs. There's no jobs in the city. There's nothing going for them. So for them, it's a completely different meaning. Now the corporation has taken all the land. I, young farmer, would love to grow oil palm, like. Smallholders love oil palm because it's very lucrative. They say if you have six hectares of oil palm, you can send your children to the university. Two hectares feeds the farm family, two hectares feeds the farm, two hectares is your investment fund for education and land purchase, etc. So that you can prosper in the countryside. You don't want to go to the city, there's nothing for you there. If you want to be rich, be an oil palm smallholder. But the corporations already have all the land. So that's a very different situation. So same crop, different transformation dynamics in Malaysia and Indonesia produces a really different scenario, which is why, you know, we have to look at these processes, you know, uh, what's going on in the countryside. It's not really the same thing, even with the same crop. Yeah. Um, on this question of <laughs> why did we go away from the rural? Well, it, it's interesting because when I first so I told my husband, who's there, like I was going to publish in Journal of Peasant Studies, he laughed, you know, like, <laughs> like how ridiculous, how backward, you know. But in fact, Journal of Peasant Studies is the most successful journal ever, right? It's the top-ranked journal in development studies, and I think it's like also in anthropology, right? So they're oddly, um, an arcane format, the Journal of Peasant Studies has become wildly popular. Why? Partly, um, 
you know, new demographic, I would say, you know, uh, attracting scholars who are working on social movements and farmers' movements. It's also expanded the questions. It's not just, you know, the state, the moneylender, and the peasant, and the landlord, like the old cast of characters. People are interested in food politics and environment. So it's sort of morphed, you know, into adjacent areas, like agrarian studies is now environmental studies and climate change and food and food security and SDGs and like it, it's it's it, they all are publishing in general peasant studies but you actually look at the topics they've sort of expanded so that would be on the positive side to say that actually people are returning to the rural but not necessarily in the same terms even the crystal publishing in the same journal but that's really part of it I think in anthropology in our discipline, um, definitely a turn away from the rural. I, I almost, I've had a couple of Pakistani students looking at rural Pakistan, but in general, very few graduate students in my career who have really wanted to do the kind of work that I do. So it, it does suggest that it's not very sexy. You know, it's disregarded as a bit arcane. Okay, we have um, five questions in the room and one online. So this gentleman here in the scarf has been waiting and the gentleman in the grey at the back has been waiting. So if we have gentleman in the scarf first and then um, you. Yeah. Hi, Tanya. Thank you for your talk. I am one of those who works on rural parts. I'm here. Okay. And I'm interested, <laughs> and I'm interested in the Journal of Peasant Studies. So here you are. Uh, my question is about how do we... I also see the agrarian transformation in my fieldwork area, which is in, uh, in the Indian Western Himalayas. And there are these uh, changing aspirations. So how do we uh, represent uh, agrarian transformations and relation to landscape? In your way, you are showing, uh, contrasting them with the plantation. So again, you're using uh, the modernity vocab to show them they are efficient, they are productive, you're questioning the myth of lazy, native. Uh, should we use that vocab and show the changing aspirations and want to be a part of the development journey of the state? Or do we contrast, uh, to be a part of the state, of the development state, modernizing state? Or the alternative is coming from, you know, Latin America, where the question is representing indigenous autonomy, uh, pluriversal ontology. So, do we represent agrarian as the plot or as uh, a more efficient plantation? You know. Great. And the gentleman in the grey just there with the curly hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Tanya. I really appreciate your move away from uh, overtaking urban scholars that want to see everything as urban. Some of them going as extreme as uh, calling for uh, seeing the whole world as planetary urbanization. And they identify certain processes influenced by Lefebvre as Marxism, uh, capitalist relations, entering a new phase of urban processes of accumulation. And uh, seems like the processes that you are offering is an antidote to that for us to identify what is rural through processes, not the, like the first question asking what is urban, what is rural, mm -hmm. what are the processes of rural capitalist relations and uh, urban ones on the other hand. And if I can add one sub-question to this, it's Small my one. own interest in nomadism, 
Would you also categorize the third category of uh, nomads that are not rural, urban, rural, and then pastoral nomads or other forms of nomads? Thank you. Thank you. you do you want to take those two? Okay, sure. I don't want to give you too many in one go. Yeah, okay, great. Um, so people's relationship to the landscape, right? I've had this debate with um, anthropologist Marisol de la Cadena, for example, you know, who's written about you know, Pandemama and the Latin American sort of people's attachment to ancestral lands. And, and she said, well, I said, well, either I'm a really bad anthropologist and I just don't notice these things, or Southeast Asia is actually quite different. Like in my own ethnographic experience, what I find is people are highly pragmatic in their relationship to the natural environment. So there may very well be spirits in that tree, but if we need to cut the tree down, because that's a good place for a farm, we'll just ask the spirits very nicely and give them an offering and say, you know, please move over to this tree. We've prepared it for you because I'm sure you'll understand, you know, we too need to live and, and this is good farmland, right? So a pragmatic relationship to, uh, you could say, sort of um, enlivened, inspirited land. But it's not a conservationist one where this tree has to be there. It's like, you can't make a farm if you don't cut down trees. Like that's just in the nature of things, right? You know, you and, and then they say, well, these are ordinary trees. You have to cut them. That's how you make a garden. So I think this question of how people relate to elements of the kind of uh, natural landscape is something that you really have to uh, look into in each situation. So farmers in our plantation world were horrified by the injecting of the trees with Roundup and they gave it a moral reading. They said, these trees gave everything. You know, these palms gave all the oil that you asked them to, and in their old age, you're not just gonna let them die gracefully, you're gonna kill them off. Like, that is just bad treatment, right? So, it was interesting, right? I mean, they, they because they also saw their own mortality. It's like, it's, it's like old workers get kicked out, old trees get killed off, you know? So, they made these, uh, comparisons and, and, and were unhappy, but you know, they also cut down trees if they need to, right? It depends a little bit on the, on the conditions. But the one thing about Latin America is it's overwhelmingly urban, right? And most countries of Latin America have, um, you know, 80 to 90% of the population lives in cities. This is not true in Asia, right? It's Latin America and Asia are really different on, from this point of, of the importance of agriculture and the importance of rural livelihoods in India, in, or in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in China, you know, uh, in Pakistan, like the rural is still the place where most people live and get their livelihoods and this is not true in Latin America. So, you know, different continents, different dynamics. Um, in terms of planetary urbanism, I mean, I don't know how helpful it would be to, to regard, uh, you know, Eric Wolf called plantations factories in the fields, right? And he said that in fact, the original industrial manufacturing form was the plantation. So that kind of parallel has been, has been drawn for uh, a long time now how far you get with that, you know, what, what really is, uh, what's the helpfulness of making those kinds of comparisons? Um, I don't know. I mean, as you can imagine, I reacted to that planetary urbanism <laughs> 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 quite the thinking, 
hold on a minute. So like, what planet do you live on? Because where I hang out, it doesn't look like that, you know, at all. Um, but I also feel it's dangerous, right? Because it, it means that, that, as I started off by saying, if, if, it's, if it's all the urban in the future, you don't need to worry about this stuff, you know? Because sooner or later, it will empty out and people will just march off to the city, right? As if, it's like the, the, the way that that kind of thinking enables this lazy transition narrative that I think I'm insisting on. Um, nomads, I mean, how often are nomads voluntary versus forced? You know, mm. people who are on the move because they've been, uh, they've lost access to the resources that they were relying on and, and now they've, they're kind of set loose. I mean, nomad sounds a little bit like you would choose a nomadic life. And I, you know, I think, again, distinctions have to be made there. There. <laughs> okay, um, the online question has disappeared. I th oh, maybe. <laughs> um, so we have eight minutes left. There are three people who've been waiting very patiently. David, the gentleman next to him in the stripy jumper, and Mukulika. Um, David's just here in the second row. And then that might be it. Then you okay. just choose whether to answer. Just, David, if you put your hand up. So. <laughs> Thanks for a really interesting talk. I mean, I guess. One, you know, one of the things that you've talked about so comprehensively is a kind of erasure of rural history and, and the way in which, you know, rural pasts have been sort of swept away. And I, I just wondered, I mean, I've just become quite interested in where these memories go and, you know, what, what, to what extent representations of the rural sort of reappear or in ways that are not just, I think you mentioned the, you know, the lazy peasant narrative as mm -hmm. still being very strong. But are there not other ways in which um, the rural gets represented in, you know, popular culture, in uh, romantic, um, in narrations of past struggles and solidarities? Mm. And Thank you. And the gentleman next to you? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I have, a, I have a couple of points. Um, you made, I think you, you say, if I heard you rightly, that when people started planting trees, property rights became important. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have an explanation for why that happened. Uh, I can think of a uh, comparable case in the Chittagong Hill tracks, noted by the German-Swiss anthropologist Lorenz Wettler, that when the indigenous people started planting mandarins, suddenly the issue of property rights became important. Mm -hmm. And the way that could be explained was this, that prior to that- Just keep it a little bit short, just we're running out of time slightly, sorry. <laughs> Sweden farming, Sweden farming did not need anything more than temporary use rights, but uh, the, the fruit growing trees were perennial and therefore property rights became important. The other point is that the issue about exclusion without inclusion, mm. Uh, mm. this has been termed uh, dispossession without proletarianization mm. in the context of India. My question is the, the debates in, uh, on land grab resistance and struggles to land grabs has kind of 
polarized between the struggle against exclusion, expulsion and struggles for incorporation. Mm -hmm. But when you have expulsion without inclusion, you neither have the struggles, well, struggles for expulsion don't get you anywhere, but there is also no scope for struggles for incorporation, and people kind of drop out into a kind of uh, reckless uh, place where there is no biopolitics which is concerned with it. And just Mukulika has been waiting for, apparently it's a very small question, very small question. <laughs> I really appreciate your, your refocusing attention on rurality, I've been doing this for 20 years in India, where of course, like you were saying, two-thirds of the population lives in rural India. So it's a very significant uh, population. And one of the ac reasons for academic erasure of the interest in rurality, there may be many. I wondered whether you had, you had thoughts on, on the interest that economists have in this. And I'm very aware of, we're, we're sitting in the LSE, our Nobel Prize winning economist, Arthur Lewis, after whom the economics building is now named mm -hmm. at LSE, was responsible. He got the Nobel Prize for proposing the lowest turning point, right? Which is such an important contribution to that transitional narrative. Surplus, surplus labor from rural is absorbed in the urban and then it stabilizes and that causes rise of rural labor wages. Mm. Utter nonsense. I mean, that just hasn't happened in large parts of the world. So have economists just lost interest in this question and whether, especially because you seem to be attuned to Indonesian academic discourses, is there any hope there in, in that uh, discussion? Thank you. So Tanya, you have three minutes. To... <laughs> it's, it's a minute per question. Where does my risk go? So I think, again, this is quite nationally specific, right? I would say that Indonesia does not, as far as I'm aware, you Indonesians in the audience, I know this, many of you, um, I've never seen a kind of a, a romantic myth of the rural. Um, peasants are always uh, presented as idiots. Um, maybe there's a little bit of the sense of like community, family, uh, that gets rift on the rural, but in general, there isn't a kind of a category of the the campesino as the hero of the revolution, or as you have in China, you know, it's like, I, I haven't really seen a romance of the rural in general, so where do the memories go? Uh, you have to first of all, you know, have a, have a, a figure um, of the noble peasant in order to mourn the loss thereof. Um, in terms of uh, why trees produce property. So uh, I call this the labor theory of property. Cutting trees produces property, property, and planting trees also produces property, because in both cases labor is involved in the transformation of the initial state. So if you clear land throughout Southeast Asia, pioneers get a property right. In some contexts they can pass this on to their descendants, in other contexts it becomes, it reverts to the community, but the rights of the pioneer because of their investment in clearing land are acknowledged, at least during the lifetime, sometimes beyond. Planting tree, if you plant like a coconut tree or a mango tree or something, it's yours. It's understood that planting trees is, creates property. Again, sometimes this is then inherited by multiple generations, so it becomes kind of collective because lots of people descend from the planter of the rambutan tree, they live really long. 
But the theory that labor produces property is the kind of the key. And I think that's true right across the Southeast Asian region and probably in the situations that you're describing as well. So the difference with cocoa is that you're not just planting one tree, you're planting a whole field. So now you're, you're not just claiming rights to an individual tree and land around it, but you're enclosing territory because you're planting many. So it's like the old theory, the labor theory of property, kind of morphed into a new situation in which people are planting fields of perennials and using this as a vehicle of enclosure. So in my one minute. Um, <laughs> on the question of, uh, you know, exclusion without, yes, I mean, the struggle for incorporation, you know, I wrote a paper, which I know you know, Adnan, on uh, what I call it, censoring labor in the land grab debate, which was precisely about that, right? I, to me, the drama was always the labor, like land can pass hands, but what is anybody thinking about where all the people will go and what they will do? And even the promoters of these large-scale land investments acknowledged, the World Bank acknowledged, that the jobs generated were tiny and far fewer than the jobs lost. So even the economists recognized that there is no labor absorption in that form of development. Most of these forms of corporate agriculture are labor displacing. So plantations, all palm, one worker per five hectares, rubber one for one, the crop matters. If it's soy in Amazonia, it's like 100 hectares managed by you know, one guy with his tractor, you know, highly labor displacing. So you know, the, this question of, of the labor absorption always has to be scrutinized for sure. Um, what's happened with the economists? Have they lost interest? So, um, you know, it, you know, there, 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 there was a moment when jobless growth was being named as a thing, like in India. I've even saw some economists uh, talking about it in Indonesia, that there had been corporate investment, but it was jobless, growth was jobless. I even saw the Indonesian Minister of Finance acknowledge that in a 10-year period in which there had been a large increase in foreign investment, um, the number of jobs generated was almost none. In fact, the main jobs generated in the same period were small-scale farmers absorbing more and more people on the land, right? So the economists sort of sometimes acknowledge it, jobless growth, but then Indonesia passes an omnibus law called catch it, the law for job creation, which is an investment law eviscerating land and environmental protections and labor protections in the name of jobs and development. So even though they may acknowledge that in fact the jobs are not generated by this kind of corporate path, they still do it in the name of jobs and development. So there is, there is a mismatch, and I don't know where the economists are on that, but it's like they, they, the studies may show it, but the discourse still continues down the transition path, which is mighty stubborn. Right? However much evidence you throw at it, it there's this myth it, it is still there. Thank you everyone for your engagement. Many, many apologies if you didn't get a chance to ask your question. And Tanya, thank you so much for your fantastic trip. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. 
we hope you join us at another LSE event soon.